Hi, I'm Rina. And I'm Arbaz. Twice a month, we chat with innovators, entrepreneurs, and changemakers. This show is for creative thinkers who have a passion for changing the world. We are happy to share our conversation with Ed Lines, a founding partner at Woden, a strategic brand storytelling firm. Woden helps organizations develop a clear, compelling narrative and align all they do behind that story. Prior to founding Woden, Ed had a decade-long career in sales and marketing at media and tech companies, scaling brands from under $1 million to $25 million in revenue. Although he's a native Bostonian with diehard passion for the Celtics, Red Sox, and Patriots, Ed now resides in Philadelphia with his Wheaton Terrier, Bailey. In this episode, Ed elaborates on his own hero's journey, sharing his passions and inspirations as he helps other brands and organizations discover their own voice and stories to tell. So, Ed, storyteller, master storyteller, uh, tell us your story. How did you get into this role? Yeah, uh, well, it's kind of funny, uh, you know, certainly not intentional, right? Which I think is probably the case, you know, for most people in really, I guess, any business or profession, it seems so often like we end up doing something different than we think we're going to be uh, when we start. But, uh, you know, I actually went to school originally for finance, uh, which is a really bizarre transition from that to uh, marketing and kind of sales and entrepreneurship. But um, my business partner, Dan, uh, and I met each other through scouts when we were kids. We were both in the uh, Boy Scouts together. And uh, 2005, he was starting a newspaper company down in South Jersey, and uh, he uh, invited me to come do that with him. So I packed up uh, all my belongings. I put them in the back of a, a old Saab 900, and I drove down to Philadelphia and uh, have more or less been here ever since. And, you know, um, it's funny. When you get into entrepreneurship and you're, you're building businesses, and he and I had a, a couple different companies together, you know, you grapple with all kinds of different problems that uh, come before you. And some you expect and you're prepared for, and certainly some you don't. You know, and in our second business, uh, we had a telecom company and, um, you know, really kind of wrestled with um, the right way to position that and kind of tell that story and uh, went out to try to find somebody to help us do that, as you often do in a, a firm when you're looking for help and really uh, wrestled with finding someone who kind of just valued that nature and art of building the core strategic story that holds an organization together. You know, we talk to a lot of digital mm-hmm. marketers, a lot of um, PR agencies, a lot of kind of traditional branding agencies um, who all were, were excellent, right, and, and excelled in their kind of discipline. But no one who really was thinking kind of about, all right, what's that core narrative that ties that together? And certainly, you know, when you're sitting across the table um, in telecom from a big potential client and you're looking to get a, you know, eight, nine, 10, 15 million dollar deal signed, um, it's not about your press release, right? It really is about how you can communicate the story um, of what you're trying to do and, and how you how you can partner with them. Um, so, like any good entrepreneur, you know, if you can't hire somebody to do something, you figure it out yourself. And uh, we ended up kind of going through a process where we uh, really clarified um, our positioning and kind of figure out the most compelling way to communicate it. And the, the business ended up growing really quickly after that. Um, and we kind of had one of those like you know sort of eureka moments where you say, "Wow, like we didn't change." Uh, a lot about our marketing approach. We didn't change a lot about our sales approach. Um, we changed the way that we talk about who we are and why we matter. And um, mm. 
so, between success and failure. So. Well, you know, how, how do you go about telling someone, you know, within a marketing, who's a marketer, digital marketer, someone who's an entrepreneur, how do you tell them that their story is missing some components? Do you get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of pressure back or do they take it, you know, easily? How is it, how is it usually? You know, it's funny. I typically don't. Um, most people who, who are struggling with that, uh, feel it, right? You know, I think one of the things about story, right, is that it really is a very emotional thing. You know, our brains are hardwired to communicate and to understand information in the form of stories. And a lot of times, you know, the biggest kind of way you, you get people to understand that is, you know, you get a company that's got a great product or a great team, um, you know, really kind of successful, all the kind of foundations that you would expect them to have. And, you know, you often ask them, like, do you guys feel like people just don't get it, right? Like, you talk to your employees, and they're like, if you're in leadership, they're not understanding what you're trying to communicate. They're not getting the vision. If you're talking to customers, you're in front of them, and they just don't see the value. And I think those periods of disconnect, whether they're internal disconnects with employees, whether they're external disconnects with customers or investors, like, that gap is really your story, I think, bridges um, exceptionally well, right? And I think... For a marketer, for an executive, it's not about telling them, hey, you're not good at this, right? Because, you know, odds are they're probably great at 99% of what they're trying to do. Um, it's that kind of 1% of some outside perspective to say, hey, why don't we think about maybe talking about this a little bit of a different way? Um, and suddenly that becomes like rocket fuel, right? You add that into the stuff they're already doing that's really powerful. And like, um, you are an eloquent speaker, and that's something that I admire um, in others. Um, so with this gift of gab, how did you learn, you know, how did you learn this craft of storytelling? Or was it something that you already possessed, this quality? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I guess the first thing I'll say is thank you. I, I don't often think of myself as eloquent, but I uh, accept and appreciate the compliment. You know, um, I think probably two pieces to that, right? You know, certainly on the storytelling side, most people think of storytelling kind of purely as an art form, right? That sort of, can you be compelling? Can you engage an audience? The fact is there is an enormous amount of science behind how you craft and create um, compelling stories. And that's true. That's true from the um, structural standpoint, uh, you know, the work of kind of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and kind of what the different pieces of that are uh, right. elements from dra drama, like Freytag's pyramid in terms of how you create inciting actions, rising actions, you know, the climax in the story. Uh, and then, of course, you know, even some of the kind of like neuroscience behind how our brains respond to this. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think people underestimate the storytelling sometimes that there really is some consideration behind the art, right? That if you do it well, uh, it's a mixture of art uh, and science. Uh, I think um, for my, my own eloquence, I guess I'll um, credit my education, which as educators yourself, you'll appreciate. I there's a uh, I'm a product of, for better or worse, you know, 12 years of Catholic schooling. So uh, I guess they always put speaking curly and eloquently. And um, I guess you can thank you can thank the Jesuits in the Archdiocese of Boston for getting that message driven. That's me. wonderful. I went to a private Catholic school too, Aquinas High School here in San Bernardino. So yeah, we had a I had a a few Jesuit priests. That, you know, that instilled those values as well. Um, so moving forward, as young kids, you know, we naturally naturally gravitate towards, you know, things we love and we drive right into expressing our creativity. 
Um, what was your childhood like? What were you passionate about, Ed? Do you have any exciting yeah. moments? Yeah, you know, um, so my big childhood passion, and, and it's an area where I still uh, contribute pretty actively in my life. Uh, and, you know, if a whole podcast about storytelling isn't nerdy enough, uh, here it comes. Uh, my big thing in scouting, or excuse me, as a child, was scouting. Uh, I was really involved in the Boy Scouts as a kid. Uh, I became an Eagle Scout. I uh, was really involved in you know, sort of all the different programs that they had uh, available for kids right up through the time that uh, I finished high school and went to college. So uh, really for me, that was kind of always uh, the big passion for me. And I think, you know, a lot of my defining experiences that I think back to were either experiences, you know, as a uh, 13-year-old patrol leader at camp trying to kind of wrangle a bunch mm-hmm. of 11, 12, and 13-year-olds to, like, do the dishes, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, going uh, backpacking with the other kids in my troop or, you know, going to the jamboree. So, uh, for me, uh, those big experiences as a young person were in scouting and um, today uh, remain extraordinarily involved uh, just because I've seen the type of impact that it has uh, in terms of preparing kids to um you know, not just have great adventures as a young person, but really give them the kind of um, ethical foundation to become good leaders and, uh, uh, you know, prepare themselves to have a, a really uh, terrific and successful life as an adult. So, yeah, really mm-hmm. all all scouting. If you were looking for me at 12, I was probably off uh, on a camping trip somewhere, making oh, a fire, oh, or, you know, cool. unsafely waving a knife somewhere. So. <laughs> I love that. Um so a little bit back to storytelling. So when uh, when you meet your clients, what would you say uh, is what's the first impression that they have? What do you try to get out to them? What do you try to understand about their brand? And you know what's been like the before and after uh, after speaking to your client, going through the whole process, and then after what what were you able to achieve? Yeah, I think on the first question in terms of like when I meet a prospective client or even a, a a confirmed client, what we're trying to do with them. You know, uh, Michelangelo had this whole expression about sculpting, right, where he would talk about this idea that he didn't actually create any of his sculptures, right, that when he looked at a piece of marble, he had already seen the sculpture that was within that marble, and he would just work to remove um, all the excess pieces to reveal the shape um, that was underneath and had been there Mm. um, since the beginning. And I think about, you know, when you come into an organization, uh, and, and have worked to build their narrative, it really works the same way, right? Like, you know, it would be ridiculous for me to come into any business and say, oh, hey, like, I know your business really well, and I'm going to, you know, build this message for you. Because the fact is, they know their business, they know their market, they know their customers, they know their employees uh, better than we ever will during the course of an engagement, right? Mm. Our job is to listen intently and to really help them do, you know, three things, right? Number one is figure out what are those pieces of the story that exist within the organization that ought to be elevated? Uh, what are the aspects that ought to be kind of minimized or, or eliminated? Uh, and then how do we structure that in the way that's going to be most compelling? Um, but I've never had an instance where we've brought uh, creative work to a client and they've said, oh, my gosh, like, where did this come from? It may look different uh, than they've thought about it before. It may be phrased differently than they've phrased it before. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, it came from somewhere in the organization. So. Um, I think certainly kind of number one for us, what are we looking for? What are we trying to do? We're trying to be good listeners, right? Um, Mm. You know, and I think from the the transformational uh, piece of it, you know, it really, like everything, I think comes down to feel. You know, I think 
one of the things that you like really see as a eureka moment, we had a client last year also in the education space uh, called Open Scholar, and they uh, have a um, asset management system for um, research institutions to be able to publish uh, really kind of uh, research-heavy documents like uh, dissertations or studies and, and sort of things of that nature um, mm-hmm. online. And, uh, you know, we worked with them to build out their kind of positioning, their story, and very quickly after we finished the engagement, they went off to a conference. And, you know, one of the things that we heard talking to the CEO when she came back from that was, you know, they've obviously been to a lot of academic conferences over the years talking about their product, trying to meet potential um, clients. You know, she said, just the difference in talking about ourselves the way we were before and knowing how hard that was, right, to really mm-hmm. get across to people and really connect with people. And then like, wow, we went to this conference the other weekend and it was like, boom, like people got it. They understood it. You know, we set demos, we had conversations, people were interested. And I think when you can work with a, a particularly a, a leadership team that's willing to be front facing, either with clients or with their employees, um, I think they see and feel that change pretty quickly. And it's like, it's so hard to just quantify even the, um, just the confidence impact, right? Of like, wow, like, okay, like I, I feel this, I get this, I can do this, I can tell this story. Um, and then I think that just has a, a, like a force multiplier type effect across the organization when you're saying the right thing, the same thing, uh, and you're doing that consistently uh, internally and externally. Um, everybody, everybody just has a different sense of uh, focus and enthusiasm about what they're doing. Um, and it takes kind of every effort that you're making and, and really just uh, amplifies the value of it that much. significantly. I know uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier and, and in a conversation with us before you talked to us about this also is that uh, is that hero's journey, um, you know, being that hero and being able to craft a story around it. Can you tell us a little bit about the hero's journey and how it's structured? Yeah. So the hero's journey uh, is a storytelling structure that was uh, codified by a comparative mythologist uh, by the name of Joseph Campbell. Uh, he actually, I think recently they released a, a series on Netflix about him. So uh, you can watch, I think it's called The Power of Myth or something like that. He's also got a book uh, called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. But um, ironically, despite being like the world's foremost expert on storytelling, uh, it's an awful book with no narrative structure at all. But um, he's an academic and certainly writes like one. But, you know, he looked at... Um, narrative kind of across all different cultures and different periods of time on the planet. And what he discovered was that um, no matter where you were kind of independently uh, through storytelling in the oral tradition, uh, a consistent structure evolved. It's a 17 stage structure um, called the hero's journey, or as he called it at times, the monomyth um, that, you know, really underpins kind of any narrative that uh, has gained popular widespread adoption. And, um, you know, to kind of walk through the, the, the arc of it uh, and always kind of use Star Wars as a good example. Uh, fun fact, Camp- Campbell actually worked on sort of the second or third revision of the script of the original Star Wars. So the structure right. hues pretty closely to what he what he lays out and uh, no surprise, you know, helped it be one of the kind of first big blockbusters. But, you know, if you think about the start of any kind of narrative, right, you've got um, a hero, a main a protagonist of the story, um, who's residing in some kind of sort of fundamentally broken world. Uh, the hero of the story is almost always some kind of powerless outsider. Um, that's because audiences can build better empathy and attachment uh, with that type of character. It's why in a lot of stories you see the, the main character be a teenager, uh, an orphan, 
some other kind of like social outcast. Um, and you, know, you see that again, like in Star Wars, Luke Skywalker is obviously an orphan. Um, that character lives uh, in a world that suffers from a state of kind of fundamental disrepair. Uh, and audiences see that and they really kind of feel the tension of that and the need to fix it. It seems unjust. It seems wrong. Um, you know, obviously in this case of Star Wars, uh, Luke is, you know, living in the middle of a desert, uh, farming moisture with his uh, miserable aunt and uncle uh, under the impression <laughs> of an evil galactic empire, right? So there's like a real, like, oh, this has got to get fixed. Um, you know, the character, um, you know, encounters uh, some kind of wiser, uh, older mentor type character. In Star Wars, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Uh, and that character basically uh, reveals to the hero that uh, so much more is powerful within them. Campbell calls this the, the call to adventure. Um, and, um, you know, kind of doesn't so much tell the character how to fix the problem, but reveals that they have some kind of inner strength or inner, inner ability um, to fix it themselves. Um, they give the character um, some type of magical gift um, that the character can use on their journey, uh, and then they set them off um, into sort of this, uh, this, this narrative journey to go fix the problems in the world. And they sort of cross the threshold into this sort of mythical and magical world, right? And this is Luke heading off um, Tatooine and off to rescue the princess, or uh, in the case of, you know, Star Wars, Dorothy, or excuse me, the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy marching down the old brick road, right? So there's that kind of element where they go off on their journey and they enter this kind of mythical world where uh, the character obviously goes through a period of growth. They typically suffer some type of like defeat during that period where things look dark and like a setback, uh, and then they overcome that challenge. Um, and ultimately, uh, they use the magical gift provided by the mentor. Um, to defeat the source of evil within the world. And again, in Star Wars, you see that big setback is, you know, he sees Obi-Wan die in front of him in the Death Star before they escape. Um, the rebound to that, of course, is they come back and attack the Death Star. He uses the force, the magical gift, um, to blow up the Death Star at the end of the movie, um, and that restores the world um, to a sense of balance. So he returns back to where he's from, um, and there's like that sense of harmony and balance, and they all live happily ever after, right? And you see that narrative play out um, obviously, Star Wars, I mentioned, it certainly plays out in The Wizard of Oz, Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings. They're all kind of the same biblical stories. They're all kind of the same narrative arc. And um, there's a lot of science that kind of shows our brains are hardwired uh, to receive information in this way and get excited about information in this way. Um, mm. So people are trying to craft and tell their own stories. You can kind of hack the audience response to that by just following the same format and the same arc. Um, and generally, people tend to respond pretty well to stories that are told uh, in that way and in that pattern. Well, speaking of hero stories, I'm curious. Ed, what are you trying to fix in this world, Ed? Um, and what are you currently championing? Uh, that's <laughs> a great question. Um, you know, I think I'll, I'll kind of give uh, two answers to that, right? A, a professional one and a, a personal one. Um, sure. Certainly on the on the pr professional side, um, I am enormously passionate, as as you know, from uh, interfacing with me, uh, and I'm sure as you can hear in my voice uh, now, uh, incredibly passionate about the type of work that we do um, at Word. You know, having uh, done this type of work with now 200 or so different organizations, um, seeing the way that it kind of can transform and clarify purpose and help people really see meaning in their work and help organizations better connect with their customers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my, my personal quest right in that regard or personal quest in that regard 
um, is, you know, we want to give every great organization the ability to build a meaningful, powerful connection with their audience uh, and turn those folks into evangelists for the brand. And I think uh, there's been too many companies that have great products, committed teams, uh, you know, a small number of passionate customers who fail uh, because they just can't get widespread adoption. And nine out of 10 times, I think when somebody fails with a good team, a good product, and a handful of clients, it's because they didn't have the right message to get a wider um, scope of adoption to either raise capital or, or grow the customer base. Um, and that's something we can help folks with. And that mm-hmm. I get excited about that. I love working with uh, executive teams to help make that happen. Um, you know, on the personal side, uh, I mentioned uh, scouting as a major passion of mine. Um, you know, the organization and the movement right now, uh, you know, we're working through um, some opportunities. You know, scouting recently became a fully co-ed uh, in the in the last year. So we've uh, embraced uh, young women in our Cub Scout and uh, Boy Scout programs. They were involved in some other programs before. Um, you know, the organization's uh, evolving to think better about how it serves um, youth today. Um, but, you know, when you look at the research and the studies out there that talk about how um, teenagers today suffer from greater rates of depression, um, greater rates mm-hmm. of social anxiety, they have a harder time today, young people have a harder time today finding purpose and meaning in life, they have a harder time um, a future for themselves. Um, and as someone who grew up in the program, there is nothing, I, I believe, nothing that better prepares uh, a young person for their life than uh, the program of the Boy Scouts and uh, and passionate about helping that organization find a way to uh, evolve, um, transform, mm-hmm. and serve a wider, uh, more diverse number of young people uh, in uh, in the country. So hopefully we're on the right path to do that. But that if I'm not working at Woden, uh, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm generally trying to figure out how to how to solve that problem. So do you find do you have any? Uh mentors or inspire you know inspirational figures that you look up to or books that really help uh, you know develop and and guide your framework of thought when it comes to uh, storytelling and brand building besides Joseph Campbell yeah well I don't know that I would say I look up to Joseph Campbell like I said he's uh, you know brilliant work that he's done uh obviously uh, did not meet him and he's uh, passed away for quite quite some time now um you know I think uh another kind of great question uh, I think a handful of people that uh, I've really kind of grown to um, connect with and, and admire. Um, the first one, you know, I'm fortunate to have a, a business partner that I've now known for over 20 years that I've been in business with for um, almost 15. And, um, you know, we've got a, a relationship where uh, I don't think there's anybody else in my life who uh, can call me on my bullshit in quite the same way that he's able to. Uh, who's able to challenge my thinking in the way that he's able to. And, um, you know, so number one, uh, I don't know if I go so far to say that I'll look up to him, but certainly as a, a mentor um, and a friend, um, you know, there's probably no one else out there that sharpens my thinking uh, in the same way that uh, that he does. So that kind of be probably uh, number one. Um, you know, number two, uh, in my life, I've been um, extraordinarily, extraordinarily fortunate um, to interface with, um, some extraordinarily successful people who, for reasons that are beyond me, have uh, been willing to make the investment in developing me uh, as a person uh, and as a, um, I guess, uh, entrepreneur or executive. Uh, there's one fellow in particular who I've known since I was uh, pretty young um, who had a really successful career in 
um, finance and in, uh, in private equity, uh, a guy by the name of John Halsey. And he's been a, a, a mentor of mine uh, for a long time. And I think, you know, one of the things that's tough, you know, when you're in the position of kind of running the day-to-day in your, in your organization, as much as you try to create culture, um, your employees and your team are only willing to challenge you to a certain point. Uh, mm. And I think from a ment- mentorship standpoint, you can always read books to learn, and that's helpful. And you can always consume podcasts or go to talks. And, um, you know, there's a couple of conferences I try to go to every year that are really helpful in that regard. But what you need are people in your life who know you and mm. know you well enough to challenge your thinking specifically and to yeah. know where your pain points are. And um, that fellow John I was m- mentioning is someone who's seen me through all phases of my career uh, and someone who I think, you know, even today um, is very capable when we speak of kind of saying you need to think about things this way or you're wrong here or, or move in this direction. Uh, and I, I can't imagine, you know, as much as you want to be, I'm probably not as self-reflective as I want, as I should be. Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, the big thing for me is probably having three or four people in my life, like Dan, like John, uh, there's a guy by the name of Randy, a couple of guys like that who are all, um, all willing to uh, challenge my thinking uh Force me to reconsider the way that I'm trying to approach a problem or something, and um, and that I think really helps sharpen uh, what you're trying to do, probably more than anything else. Well, and I, w- I would give you the credit of being self-reflective. <laughs> yeah, I, I I should be more than I am. Um, you know, you always kind of say to yourself, like, I wish I were. I was reading an article yesterday about five things you should do before 8 a.m. in the morning. And one of them uh, said that you should like reconsider your life goals, which uh, I guess sounds great in theory, but the idea of laying in bed every morning and like reconsidering (laughs) my life before 8 a.m. sounds horrifying. Um, So I think, you know, self-reflective to a point. Uh, I mean, most people at 8 a.m., they, you know, they check their phone as soon as they wake up and check their emails. So, yeah, I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write a counter post. How Inc. Magazine triggered the greatest, uh, you know, <laughs> depressive and existential crisis of my entire life. And uh, I can do all I follow the advice in that article, and have now spent every morning in bed for four hours pondering the uh, futility of my existence. Well, I mean, you know, check it out this way. What time is it over? It's like three yeah. o'clock there. It's twelve o'clock here in, in yeah. Southern California. So it's eight o'clock somewhere, right? That's true. That's very true. All right. I guess last question, Ed. Do you have any advice for those trying to find their voice, their brand, their story? Any words of advice for um, for us moving forward? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think uh, funny enough, after I just panned being reflective, um, you know, my big <laughs> advice is is always to look to look inward before looking outward, right? You know, so many people think about uh, story and brand and messaging as an exercise in how they're perceived by others, right? It's a, it's a marketing function, it's a sales function. Um, I think the reality, right, is that great storytelling, either in a brand or as a person, um, is really an exercise in knowing your authentic self uh, and finding a way to share that with the world in a way that people are going to embrace. And, um, you know, I think instead of when people are trying to come up with that narrative, instead of thinking a lot about, 
uh, how they want others to see them. Uh, they ought to think about um, who they are and uh, best they can have the confidence and trust that if they present themselves to the world in a way that's clear and clear and compelling and that can be understood, uh, folks are going to embrace that um, and be excited about that. And that's certainly something we try to do uh, with our clients. It's something that, um, you know, I would encourage all people, our team, myself, right, to do for themselves. But um, look inward, be who you really are, and, uh, you know, let, let the world figure out what they're going to do with that. I have a question to that point. You know, one of the things I hear from a lot of people uh, and a lot of brands is they they don't want to tell their story uh, because they're scared. They they don't feel like they're special. They don't feel like they're important. They don't understand why they need to tell tell their story. Uh, and I think that they're they're looking for confidence. What are some areas of confidence you can put in instill in people that are saying that look, you know, our story is not that great. And you know, I've heard you know hundreds of stories from people. That you know, when you listen to them, they're interesting, they're amazing. But the people themselves feel like it's not that great of a story. What would you tell to those people? Yeah, so I think there's two. And again, after having a whole conversation about emotional connection and storytelling, I'm going to try to give a fairly hyper rational answer. Uh, the first, you know, I think is that kind of just objective way of looking at the world, right? Which is to to look at the total addressable market, right? The number of people that are out there. And that can be, you know, people you're trying to be friends with and influence or, or prospective customers for your business and recognize that percentage wise, the number of people that you have to win over uh, to really be successful is so infinitesimally small that objectively you're, you're probably going to be able to find a market uh, out there for some people that are going to love what you have to say, even if it doesn't feel that way. Uh, and if you haven't found those people yet, just keep looking. Like one of the best pieces of business advice I ever got was if you can get 10 clients, you've got a business and you just have to figure out how to get more. But once you get 10, that means there's people out there that are going to buy what you're selling. So just keep going. Mm. Um, so that's kind of number one. And then, you know, the second piece, right, is that sort of stoicism um, ethos, right, and that idea of kind of embracing um, just kind of the, the rationality behind, look, you know, you're going to put this message out there. You are who you are. You can't change that. Right. So you have to communicate that in the way that's clearest and most compelling and mm -hmm. the chips are going to fall where they're going to fall, you know? And I think um, there's always that kind of idea of like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Uh, Tim Ferriss has a great Ted talk about uh, how people should probably think less about their goals and more about their fears. Right. And I think our boss, what you were just saying, people allow their fears to hold them back when the reality is, if you sit down and look at what's keeping you from moving forward and you map out all the worst possible case scenarios, number one, you're going to find that most of the worst possible case scenarios, you know, they don't end up with you being dead or in jail. So they're probably not that bad. Uh, yeah. And two, they're, they're fairly straightforward to mitigate. Right. Um, mm. And if like your worst case scenario is that uh, people won't like me, um, you know, well, the, you know, you probably have an easier time than I do because I feel like most people don't like me. So, um, you know, I think um, I think you just got to be as clear-headed as you can about that. Um, you know, and lay out lay out number one the reality of the opportunity, which is you don't have to get that many people to really believe in what you're doing to make a huge impact. Uh, and number two, uh, lay out the reality of your fears and recognize that um, most of what you're thinking about. As holding you back really is not as large an obstacle as you think it might be.
Awesome. Thank you so much, Ed. Thank you for your time. Uh, Rita and I definitely do like you. So <laughs> we, the world falls thank apart. You. we still like you. So. We appreciate you. I appreciate you so that. I was not fishing for a compliment, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good day, Ed. Thanks so much, Ed. Awesome. Love hey, you have guys. a great afternoon. You, you bet. Too. My pleasure. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. And follow us on social media and subscribe to our channels.